Rose was adorable. It all was easy, even though the two of us were living in a cabin built for one. The months passed quietly. Every now and then I go stay with Ben for a week or two and enjoy the luxury of his big, expensive bed. <laughs> See Dr. Gross, take some walks through the old parts of the city. Sometimes at night, while I was urinating on him, urine filling up his navel as if it were a little cup. <laughs> and then spilling everywhere. <laughs> I would look out the window and off into the darkness of the sky and cloud, and I'd lower my ass, <laughs> sputtering a bit, and then sit on top of him as he'd be growling nastily into the darkness, and I'd blow a kiss towards him in an affectionate way. <laughs> even though there was very little left that was likable about him. And then, sometimes, he'd lean against the pillows and we'd sit beside each other, looking out the window, his monstrous paw curled around me. But finally, the trips into the city became too hard to do. It was a difficult journey, and I, I, uh, I wasn't well. So, after a couple years, in the end, it was Rose who went back down to take care of Ben as he proceeded towards death. Eventually, in the progression of our peculiar illness, most people reached a point at which they just couldn't eat potatoes. Cerise had passed that point long ago, and so one day she brought me over to her potato bin and she said, Look, isn't this awful? They're going to waste. You have to eat them. But those are your potatoes, I said, alarmed, thinking that maybe one day she'd go back to them. No, please, she said. So I put almost all the potatoes into a big pot and I boiled them all up and then with Cerise just outside working in the garden, I put the potatoes into a bowl with butter and salt and pepper and I just ate and ate, you know, crying every once in a while, obviously, but still enjoying them more than I can tell you. And that was the last time I ever ate potatoes. Cerise needed me to take care of Ben, but the pain of leaving her was more terrible than anything I'd ever felt. The last days before I went down to the city, I begged to stay with her. I pleaded. But she had made up her mind. The city was dirtier now, black with dirt. And as for Ben, well, you know, Ben was bitter. He'd expected more from life. He wanted more. So his disposition was by this time hideously atrocious. <laughs> Does that convey my point? And his normal way of speaking, if he spoke at all, was a sort of sarcastic snarl, ugly and mean. So living on Pushbroom Lane couldn't be described as literally fun, quite apart from the fact that I was a servant, really, which was quite hard work. 
But I felt awfully fortunate compared to the people I saw lying down on the sidewalks and pressing their faces against the buildings. For most of the day, Ben stayed in bed dozing. I'd sit beside him with a pad of paper and my little box of paints and paint nighttime scenes of people who lived on the shore of a lake and the extraordinary things that happened to them. Cerise wrote me letters that were painful to read about the sickness and death of the animals who lived near her in the woods. Occasionally in these letters she seemed to slip into a sort of delirium in which she wrote about her past, all sorts of things I could barely understand. And around nine in the evening, we'd get up from our naps and we'd take off our pajamas and put on our little bells. And it would be time for dinner. (laughs) Banquets, parties, dancing, music. And sometimes we'd wear costumes or, or elaborate disguises. And sometimes we'd invite other animals over. Men, <laughs> people. Oh, we'd play cards, we'd gamble, we'd put on plays, do magic shows, and that's how we lived. Every Wednesday, I'd get up very, very early and stick my face into a bowl full of coffee and put on my red ribbon. And then I go into a little conference room and meet my advisors. They'd present me with a list of problems of the day. We'd discuss things a bit. Oh, I'd make some decisions. (laughs) And within less than two hours, I'd be back in my pajamas and back in my bed. (laughs) And then I'd always fall into particularly nice sleep. And I'd start the day again at noon or so, just when everyone else was getting up. Yawn, stretch, peek at the sun on the grass outside the curtains, and then go down to the dining room and have some breakfast. (laughs) Yes, you guessed it, mice again! Those poor little mice. (laughs) Oh, come on. It's funny. (laughs) Of course, you have to understand that over the centuries, we all took turns putting on a bright red ribbon and deciding things. Every um, decade or so, it would be the next cat's turn, so... Each of us knew that if we made terrible decisions, they'd probably be corrected later. Cerise's last letter was very short. It simply said, Coming in to see Gross. Dinner Thursday? And that was the last I heard. story of Ben and we've come to the end of the story the last moments the scale of his crimes meant that he deserved the most severe punishment 
death. The funny thing was that this was the very same punishment given to people who'd hardly done anything wrong at all. Perhaps he should have been made to die in agony, as those whose deaths he had caused had died in agony. But there had been much too much agony on earth already. His body would not be tormented. But before entering the realm of death, he'd be forced to give up some of the false beliefs that had served as his view of himself in the world. First he'd have to learn about something humorous, and then about something unbearable and bad. Often, in their last moments on Earth, people figure things out. They put two and two together. They realize that the things they only dimly suspected were actually true after all. So, carefully following the directions given on the invitation I'd received at my breakfast table, I did drive myself out late yesterday afternoon to this sort of suburban area that I'd rarely visited. I arrived at a large house, and when Blanche opened the front door, I saw that indeed she was a woman now, not any longer the cat who had died on Robin's sofa but in a way she really hadn't changed that much. She still seemed like Blanche. And she reminded me of someone I kept saying to myself. She brought me through the house, and we sat on a patio from which we could look down onto a large lawn filled with a great many guests, some of whom she described to me in the apparently rather conventionally confiding manner of a kindly middle-aged bourgeois hostess. Her skin was pale, like the whitewashed walls of the house, and she obviously had a few scars on her face, a few odd slashes, well concealed by makeup. But of course she was pretty, very, very pretty, with tiny teeth and a pretty pink tongue and pink lipstick. But then I noticed something quite surprising, which was that the dress she was wearing, which I found awfully nice, was actually a dress I'd once bought for Cerise. began sinking in on me, I found myself staring at Blanche's neck, where a large pink wound was almost covered up by a red ribbon, decorated with bells.
when he realized that a very funny joke had been played on him for most of his adult life. <laughs> yes, it was obviously funny that the cat I'd played with in Rose's bed had been Cerise. And the cat I hadn't liked on Push Broom Lane had been Cerise. And the white cat in the palace, whom I'd loved and who had truly known me, had been Cerise too. He knew it was funny. He realized it was funny. But he also began to feel a bit faint. He tried to stand up. He leaned against the wall. But before he could pass out, Blanche took him by the arm and led him down to the lawn below. In the middle of the lawn, there was a very nice pool, and there were some children, were they hers, who were swimming in it. And so Blanche brought me over to a shady spot where we could watch the children. And there were some lawn chairs there, and so we sat down and we continued our chat. We talked about people we'd known, whatever. And then after a while, someone brought me some tea, along with a plate of delicious cold chicken, which I ate for a while and then sat down on the grass. And that was when Blanche mentioned the album of photographs of her recent life, which she took out of a bag and seemed eager to show me. But when I opened the album with a a light smile. I saw page after page of sort of dark city sidewalks filled with the curled up bodies of old people, children, women, men. And there were black landscapes covered with dead animals animals of every kind, and pictures of the wilderness with dead cats lying in piles under enormous trees with green ribbons and bells falling across them. And I understood that the people and the animals were the ones I'd killed. And then Blanche and I sat there in silence for a long time. One of us reaches death by a separate path. But I must say, the last part of the journey is really shocking. I mean, it covers an awful lot of ground awfully fast and sort of takes your breath away. Anyway, I'm sure you all have lots of opinions about death and how it ought to be organized and managed. But one thing I know you'll like about it is that after death, you can have some awfully interesting conversations. After death, 
the murderer and his victim can sit down together and have a perfectly nice talk because the murderer can't murder anymore and the victim can't be murdered anymore. All the suffering is over. I mean, after death, a person becomes like a rock or a table, a chair or a star. Not alive and unable to suffer. And yet, the murder that happened did happen. And the suffering that happened did happen. And that can never be erased. As we sat there in the shade, it was getting late. And Blanche and I both began to feel chilly. But high above us, the sky was still blue and parts of the lawn were still sparkling with sun. Blanche started speaking to me amusingly again about this and that, and against the background of all the usual murmuring of suburban insects and the sounds of the children splashing in the pool, her voice seemed so melodious and gentle that at a certain point tears began to fall out of my eyes just the way they had at that puppet show. But then... When the sun didn't set and the party didn't end, and Blanche quietly said for a second time some of the very same things she'd said before, well, of course, I realized what was happening. And I saw that this time there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. And then I felt the chicken moving around in my throat, and I knew I was about to get very sick. Blanche walked me to the door of a bathroom in the house whose wallpaper portrayed expressionless soldiers from some distant time. And then I closed the bathroom door and I began to vomit. And it got pretty painful. But then Blanche decided to take pity on me. She knocked on the door led me out of the bathroom and explained that there was, after all, a somewhat nicer way out, a sort of back door that could be used. I mean, it was all rather special and most people didn't know about it. But it had always been my luck to be lucky and there didn't seem to be any reason why that should stop now, particularly. So we went outside again, and Blanche pointed the way to an enormous meadow filled with buttercups, across which one could walk until one pleasantly fell asleep, with no vomiting at all. We looked at the meadow, and I held him close to me for a brief moment, and then I sent him on his way. It was just the time of day in which the direct sun on one's face was totally agreeable and not at all too hot. And sure enough, by the time I was halfway across the meadow, I desperately wanted to lie down and fall asleep. So I found a very pleasant mossy spot 
and I curled up pleasantly in a comfortable position. Um, and you know, what can I say? I mean, at least don't be envious. I have to admit, it felt quite nice. Wallace Shawn. I'm Andre Gregory, and I directed the production. The actors were Wallace Shawn as Ben, Julie Haggerty as Cerise, Jennifer Tilly as Robin, and Emily Cass McDonald as Rose. Bruce Odland was the composer, engineer, designer, editor, and podcast director. The mezzo-soprano was Hai Ting Chin. Mastering was by Mark Fuller. Many thanks to Rob Wiener, Paul Simon, the Royal Court Theatre, Dominic Cook, Oscar Eustace, and Jeffrey Harrow. These podcasts were produced by Matt Rogers and Sean Williams of Gideon Productions.